Open your Bible with me to the book of Exodus, chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1. When we planted the Trails Church nearly three years ago, we made it our practice to preach through the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, in the same way that the people of God have long studied His Word together. And we generally make it our rhythm to uh, go back and forth from the Old Testament to the New Testament so that we have a balanced diet of Scripture. More than just going back and forth between Old and New Testaments, we also in- intentionally cover different literary genres of the Bible. So let me explain what that means. You see, the Bible is one book consisting of 66 books telling one story of God's glorious salvation in Jesus Christ. This news is so wonderful, it cannot be told with one literary genre. Now, if it's been too many years since senior English, let me re- let's just rehearse the literary genres we find in Scripture. There is narrative, history, poetry, epistles, that's a biblical word, that means letters, prophecy, gospels, all written by God through men so that we might know him. The first book that we studied as a new church was the book of Philippians, a New Testament epistle written by the Apostle Paul. And then we turn to the Old Testament book of Ruth, written in narrative form. Then we jump back to the New Testament book of Matthew, which is a gospel. It tells of the birth and life, death and resurrection of Jesus. That's what a gospel does. Each summer we've been in the Psalms, which are poetry. And today is the day we set our course through Exodus. The second book of the Old Testament, Exodus is a narrative. It's a story. It's the story in the Old Testament of how God redeemed his people. Well-crafted stories help us understand so many things. Well-crafted stories help us understand truth and our world and our lives. Stories captivate and entertain us. They inspire and shape us. From ones told around a campfire to those passed down from generation to generation. From ones told on a theater stage. To those in a comic book, we love stories. Some stories are so compelling, they found themselves told in a variety of ways. So, for example, when the same story is told both in a book form and in a movie. All right, so if you have a friend who has both read a certain book and watched the movie of that book, what's the advice that they give you before you go see the movie? What do they tell you? Read the first. Same thing parents tell their kids before they'll let them watch a movie of written on that book, right? Read the book first. Well, when it comes to the story of Exodus, what I want us to consider is that perhaps there's more to this book than Charlton Heston, with all of his swagger, can show us. More than the Disney magic of the Prince of Egypt can portray. There are other terrible renderings of this story as well. We don't have time for those. Because this story was written by God himself, meant to be read 
and heard and preached and listened to from generation to generation until Christ returns. So I want to give us the same advice that avid readers would give to casual moviegoers. Read the book first. This is exactly what we'll be doing in the coming months. Reading the book, meditating on it, studying it, applying it to our lives. Many have called Exodus the gospel of the Old Testament because it is overflowing with good news. It truly is a tale of good news from long ago, how God redeemed his people from captivity in Egypt in order that they might worship him. And it's filled with unforgettable scenes, a baby in a basket and a burning bush, locust swarming plague and an angel of death. Manna from the sky, water from a rock, a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire at night. The Ten Commandments and the instructions and and inauguration of the tabernacle. Yet while all of those remarkable scenes play a vital role in this story, let's not miss this. Primarily, this is a story about God. As a matter of fact, God is the main character of the story of Exodus. It's his story. So as we set our course on this journey, uh, we will not make it through the opening seven verses before we stop and marvel at the faithfulness of God in this redemption narrative that is being told in Scripture. Our Our passage today serves both as an introduction... And a transition. So, but God is speaking even when he's transitioning in the story. This serves as a transition in the way these verses echo the book of Genesis. And while they also introduce and anticipate the story of Exodus, which tells us that a new era and a new relationship of Yahweh will have with his people, that day has dawned like the morning sun. So let's explore Exodus 1, 1 through 7, which I have entitled, The Genesis of Exodus. I hope you see the cleverness of that. (laughs) And I want to trace our line between three points. One, where the story begins. Two, where the story ends. And three, the moral of the story. If you're able, let me invite you to stand to your feet for the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. As we read from the book of Exodus for the very first time. Exodus 1, 1 through 7. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin. Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Would you please be seated?
So first, let's look at these verses and see what they tell us about where the story of Exodus begins. The first word in this book in the original Hebrew is the word vav, which sounds a lot like wow. In English, it's the word and. And so as Moses goes to write the story of God redeeming his people, the word and is telling us that he's not beginning a new story as much as he is continuing the one already being told, beginning in the beginning, the book of Genesis. So this passage is a recap. It's catching us up and reminding us of where the book of Genesis left off. So when our twin girls were first born, uh, we got no sleep. And the television show 24 was very popular. Anybody remember 24? Jack Bauer with his two tones of voice, yelling and whispering. Nothing in between. Well, uh, we were up all night anyway, so we would binge watch episodes of 24 when we, we couldn't sleep. 24 contains the story of Jack Bauer, whose job was to save the world from an endless wave of terrorist organizations. And each, uh, my mother-in-law would always say, I hope the terrorists aren't watching this. She'll be in the next service. I'll still tell that. Um, each, each episode of 24 began with these words, previously on 24. And that would cue a one-minute recap of the episode that had just aired the week before. Well, in his ancient way, Moses is saying in this introduction previously in Genesis. These lists of names mentioned in verses 1 through 5 are known as the sons of Israel or the 12 tribes of Israel, as we call them often. And with the mention of these characters, Moses is pointing our thoughts back to what he assumes we already know, the story arc of Genesis. Genesis means beginnings, and it tells us the beginnings of everything. God is the source. Out of nothing, he fashions everything, the heavens and the earth. It tells the story of the beginning of humanity and work and love. It contains the first whisper of how one day the seed of the woman, Eve, would crush the head of the seed of the serpent, which is Satan. Genesis also tells us the beginning of God uh, starting that work, informing for himself a people. And Moses doesn't tell us anything of the lives of these people called the Israelites. Over these 400 years of history are contained in these seven verses, by the way. And the only thing that Moses tells us is one detail in verse 7. Let's read it again. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly... They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now, there are two specific, very important passages in the book of Genesis that ring through that verse. The first one is Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 and 28, where Moses recorded, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So there we see how man and woman, mankind, was formed uniquely, divinely designed by the hand of God. 
He's even speaking in poetry there. And then he moves from poetry to prose and goes on. He says in verse 28, And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Here we are reminded that it is the Lord who created his people, the Lord who's promised to bless his people, and the Lord who will multiply his people. He sends us into the world with this first great commission to be fruitful multiply as image bearers of God in the world, bringing glory to him in everything that we do. That's the first passage that we hear an echo of in verse 7. The second one from Genesis is Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. Now this chapter begins highlighting how by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called out to go to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance And as he went out, not knowing where he was going. That's how the writer of Hebrews says it in Hebrews 11, verse 8. As Abraham obeys, God promises to him, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So again, we hear that same refrain of Exodus 1-7 in those two passages. Genesis 1-27-28 and Genesis 12-1-2. We can see that beginning with Abraham and through this line, through Abraham's line, that God will create his people and bless his people and multiply his people so that they're as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the shore. Genesis 22, verse 17. Sounds great, doesn't it? Well, there's just one problem, and it's in verse 6, where we find Joseph, which is the last of the patriarchs in Genesis, he's died. Not only that, but all of his brothers have died. Those are the 12 tribes of Israel. Not only them, but the entire generation has passed away. That's what may seem like the story is over. Maybe even fully told that God promised this blessing and it's come to an end. But with God, death is not the end of the story. Good authors know how to use tension in their storytelling. And I think Moses is the best author in the entire Old Testament. Here he uses the skill of his pen to create enough tension between verses 6 and 7. You could hang your clothes on them and let them dry. Verse 7 holds an ocean of theology in a single drop. In verses 6 and 7, Moses is telling us, yes, the generations that have gone before may have died, and now we have God's people in a strange and foreign land. They're not in the promised land. They're in a foreign land, Egypt. But God is still working behind the scenes. Everything is running according to plan. Each of these verbs are meant to grab our attention. Be fruitful. Multiply. Fill. Be fruitful, multiply, fill. This is the only time we find these three words together 
outside the book of Genesis. And so what's the point of using them like this? Even Siri doesn't know. (laughs) What's the point of using them like this? To point us to the faithfulness of God. That's the point of verses 1 through 7. To point us to the faithfulness of God. This is a little reminder that Moses has left for us on this trail through Scripture to remember God's faithfulness. Like a mom who writes her daughter a note in her lunchbox as a little reminder that she's praying for her in the first week of school. Uh, Like a wedding ring is a little reminder of a husband of the covenant and steadfast love that he has committed to his wife. The scripture is full of little reminders and big reminders of who God is and what God has done. And we need little reminders like this. This transitional passage contains one of them. It's a little bit hidden, but when you think about verse 1 and verse 7 side by side, it becomes a little more clear. In verse 1, the phrase, people of Israel, I'm sorry, in verse 1, the phrase, sons of Israel is used. These 12 names are given to single out these men and their families by name. By the time you get to verse 7, the phrase, people of Israel, that includes what scholars believe to be over 2 million of these people who are, we see this, the the beginnings of forming into a mighty nation. By the time we get to Exodus 40, which will be in three and a half years, (laughs) there are no longer 12 tribes, but one people. That's what God's doing. He's gathering for himself one people. And so Moses has left us this little reminder that even though we cannot see it, God is at work. What passages do you know? What passages have you committed to memory that are little reminders to you that even when you cannot see it, God is at work? Passages that tune your heart to sing, Great is thy faithfulness, O God my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not. Thy compassions they fail not. As thou hast been Thou forever will be. That's where the story begins. Now let's look at where the story ends. And I want to zoom out and give us a widescreen shot of the story of Exodus so we can understand how these 40 chapters all hang together. So let's get out the map, in the words of the Indigo Girls. Now I haven't used a paper map in in many years. But I have three map apps on my phone. I've never heard anyone call them a map app, but it seems right. That's exactly what they are. So I have three of them. Anywhere, anytime we're going on a trip, I always uh, launch two of them with routes and destinations. Sometimes I trust Google Maps. Other times I trust Waze. Plus, Jamie likes to report things along the way. It gives her something interesting to do. Well, there are... um, There are different ways to get to our destination. There's different ways to outline the book of Exodus. There are multiple routes that we could take that all arrive at chapter 40. 
But I want to tell you the route that we're taking so that everyone knows what to be looking for along the way and so that you won't be asking every five minutes, are we there yet? (laughs) The book of Exodus is unique in that it's probably best understood by its geography. By its geography. Because with each change of scenery, we learn something new both about God and his people. Let me just tell you these three stories within the story. The first is the story of Egypt. This occurs in chapters 1 through 14. In Egypt, the people of God are held captive in slavery by a powerful Pharaoh who exploits them, forces them to hard labor. They build him cities. And in this hard reality, God raises up a deliverer named Moses to lead his people out of captivity and into freedom. This is where the name of the book comes from. The Greek word word exodus is a Greek word that means going out or departure. Uh, That's found in Exodus chapter 19 verse 1 is where that word exodus is used um, in the first Greek manuscript. And then that's how we've come to know it as the book of Exodus. So the story of Egypt is where God's people learn that he is the God of redemption, that he is the God who redeems. Then we'll transition. This will probably be, um, well, in January. We'll transition from the story of Exodus to the story of the wilderness, told in chapters 15 through 19. Now, some scholars overlook the importance of these chapters as their own unit of instruction But it is here, amidst wandering in the wilderness, that God's people are tested and they learn to trust in Him as their provider, as the God who would go before them and meet their needs. He does this by uh, giving them water from a rock, bread from the sky. They're led by a pillar of cloud through the day, by fire at night. In the wilderness, we begin to see that while it may have taken God one night to get his people out of Egypt, it would take 40 years to get Egypt out of them. That's the story of the wilderness. And then finally, we find the story of Sinai in chapters 19 through 40. 19 through 40. There, God makes a covenant with his people to be their God instructs them in his truth, and also in the way that they are to go about worshiping him. Each of these stories are telling one big story, the story of the God who redeems. Exodus opens, uh, there's a lot of movement that happens in these chapters. It opens telling the account of a slave people who are building cities for Pharaoh. It ends with those same people now redeemed and liberated, building a tabernacle for their God. The story begins with a God who is known as maker and provider and promise maker. It ends with the people of God knowing him not only as those things, but also as their redeemer. It begins with Moses being raised as the redeemer of his people, but all the while pointing to a true and better redeemer to come, who would bring a full and final redemption, not merely from captivity, as important as that is, 
but from spiritual bondage. If we approach this book as worshipers and disciples of Jesus, this book will help us grow to know and love him more. One of the reasons that this kept coming to mind through our study of the Gospel of Matthew is just how closely related these two books are. Philip Ryken explains, Exodus sets the pattern for the life of Christ. Like Moses, Jesus was born to be a savior and rescued from his enemies at birth. At the start of Exodus, God calls the Israelites, my firstborn son. The Gospel of Matthew also starts with the voice of the Father saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Israel is threatened by a murderous dictator who calls for the death of the male infants, just as Herod does in the time of Christ. Jesus, like his forefathers, makes the trip to Egypt to escape this oppression. Israel then leaves Egypt, passing through the Red Sea and marches straight to the wilderness. Well, after Matthew tells us of Jesus being in Egypt, the next thing he tells us is how Jesus passes through the waters of baptism and then rises to walk into the wilderness as well. Israel feels hunger pains and thirsts while in the wilderness. Jesus, during his 40 days of fasting there, also hungered and thirsted. Alec Matir says that Exodus is the story of the Son of God who stands in need of salvation, failing at every point of life and even of privilege. Matthew tells of the Son of God who brings salvation, perfect and righteous at every point and in every circumstance and test. We will see Jesus in the book of Exodus. And we will see how God delivering his people from Egypt was a shadow of how he would deliver them once and for all from sin through the blood of a spotless lamb, just like we'll see in Exodus chapter 14. 12, Exodus 12. And in this book, written 1,500 years before the birth of Christ, we will see Christ, the true and better Moses, called to lead a people home. Standing bold to earthly powers, God's great glory to be known. With his arms stretched wide to heaven upon the cross. See the waters part in two. The the chasm of water that stood between us and God. See, the veil is torn forever. Cleansed with blood, we pass now through. Christ is the story. And it is to his glory that we'll be reading this book. That's where the story ends. And finally, let's look at these verses and hear what they might allude to about the moral of the story. Well, Exodus was written primarily by Moses around 1446 B.C. That's 3,500 years ago. Now, my kids love to make fun of me for many reasons. I feel like that's part of a role of the father in the house to be the, the cause for endless joking. Right, dads? Thus the dad joke. But uh, my kids love to make fun of me by going, historically speaking. <laughs> and because I, I do start a lot of sentence with that phrase, historically speaking, because it's important for us to learn from history. But even historically speaking, this was a really long time ago. 3,500 years. But let's 
not allow the time between our lives today, filled with busy schedules and push notifications, keep us from realizing how near this story is to our lives. Exodus helps us answer some of the most important questions in life. Questions like, does God hear the cries of his people? Does God hear you when you cry to him as his child? Can God really set us free from our sin and bondage? Can we trust that God will provide for us in the future? Where it seems our resources are depleting. Has God really promises his presence both now and forever? The resounding answer of Exodus to those important questions is yes. All of those, yes. So this old, old story of God and his redeeming power is incredibly important for us to lean in and learn from. The Exodus provides the framework of redemption for the rest of Scripture. The story of redemption recorded in Exodus gives us the vocabulary that become the standard for how this unfolding story of redemption is told. Uh, It's in Exodus we first see the words salvation and redemption. And then we see God perform those things on behalf of his people, just as he has done in Christ. The Apostle Paul echoes this idea after a section of writing to the church at Corinth about Moses and the children of Israel. He concludes in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they are written down for our instruction. That's why we have the book of Exodus, so that God could teach us who he is, who we are as his people, what life as the people of God looks like as we follow him through the wilderness of this life. And so as we read this account of the past, we understand that God has preserved this story in his word to teach us through it. The Exodus plays a vital role in the story of Scripture. It plays a vital role in our understanding of the gospel and a critical role in our life as Christians. So as we move through it, I pray by God's grace we find this to be true. Now that we have our map in hand and know what we'll be looking for along the way, let's get moving. You know how when you you leave on a journey, you've packed the car, everything's in its place, and you Go in reverse down the driveway, and then all of a sudden, by the time you reach its end, you're going back. Right? We don't have everything. We've not said everything. There's more to learn, but we have enough. If we have God's word open in our lap, and the Holy Spirit at work in our lives as our guide, we will be just fine. So let's be a people who read the book first as we take it up and read it. Let's allow it to read us, teaching us, reproving us, correcting us, training us in righteousness so that we would be complete, equipped for every good work. The story of Exodus is our story. 
It's our family story as the people of God. And God is faithful to His promise to create His people, to bless His people, to multiply them. And He does this all for His glory and for the joy of the saints. He is the God who redeems. This is the genesis of Exodus. Would you join me in prayer? God, thank you for the power of your word. For your great love for us that was demonstrated in not leaving us in our sin, but moving powerfully. Making the only way that we could be set free from our sin by sending your son Jesus to die on a cross. So let us be a a people who look to your faithfulness, who look to your provision, who look to your presence with hearts full of faith like our forefather Abraham, leaving a legacy of faith for our children to follow, trusting that when we can see and even when we cannot, that you are never late and always working We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.